At Boar's Head, we place a premium on authenticity, and the home-roasted flavor of our ever-roast chicken is no exception. Inspired by a medley of ingredients from the garden, a family recipe, and a slow-roasted craft. It's the authentic taste of home and the unmatched quality of Boar's Head. Ever-roast chicken, sliced fresh at the deli, only from Boar's Head. Compromise elsewhere. Welcome to CrimeWire, a program dedicated to bringing attention to unsolved crimes and educating the public about various types of crimes and how to avoid becoming a victim. If you'd like to submit a case to CrimeWire or suggest a topic for a future show, please email us at thenewcrimewire at gmail.com. You can also like us on Facebook at The New Crime Wire. On September 8, 1992, Dr. Pam Basu was brutally murdered during a carjacking in Savage, Maryland. Her tragic death led to the Anti-Car Theft Act of 1992, which was signed into law by President George H.W. Bush on October 25th of that year. My name is Denny Griffin, and on today's show, my co-host Elila Jones of ImaginePublicity.com and I are joined by James H. Lilly, author of Fatal Destiny, the story of the Basu murder. James Lilly is a former Marine and highly decorated 25-year veteran of the Howard County, Maryland Police Department. His awards include the Department's Medal of Valor, four Bronze Stars, four Unit Citations, and the Governor's Citation. During his law enforcement career, he worked various assignments, including Uniform Patrol, Criminal Investigations, Forensic Services, Police Academy Physical Training, and Defensive Tactics Instructor, communication supervisor, and drug enforcement. His drug unit was featured in the book Undercover by Hans Halberstadt. Policewriters.com selected James as their 2008 Author of the Year, and in 2013, Fatal Destiny was selected as the Policewriter.com Book of the Year. Jim, welcome to CrimeWire. Yes, sir. Good morning, and thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Uh, let's begin um, with what interested you in the Basu case that resulted in your writing a book about it. Well, first of all, it had a it had a very direct uh, impact on on me uh, personally because my wife uh, Jody was the first officer on the scene, and um, sometime shortly after that, um, I was asked by Sheriff Michael Chuchelo, um to be a part of the Howard County courtroom security for the trial of Bernard Eric Miller. So I was there for the beginning of that trial, right through jury selection and all the way through to the final day when the verdict was rendered in that case. Jim, can you, like, briefly go over how this all came about, how the crime was committed, and maybe give us a background um, on that particular day. What what happened? Well, at the at the particular time, at the very beginning of the morning, there were so many different things that were taking place that would bring a circle of individuals who, at the time, were unknown to each other, but would bring them together at uh, as witnesses or to being a part of this uh, very, very brutal crime. Uh, initially, what you would say is my, my wife was just very happy that it was the last day of her shift, uh, the day after Labor Day. The Labor Day weekend had been a very, very bad weekend, rainy, chilly, and this was the first day, uh, Tuesday, September the 8th, where the, the weather had cleared and was actually a very warm and pleasant day. Uh, she had picked up a, a sandwich and decided to monitor traffic while sitting in the uh, parking lot of the California Inn at the intersection of uh, Route 1 and Whiskey Bottom Road. At the same time, in the Basu household, Steve and Pam were preparing to take uh, 
Serena to her first day of preschool. At that time, Steve had his video camera out, was videotaping everything that was going on in the house with uh, Serena playing on the floor and laughing, and, and Pam um, just was so thrilled uh, to be taking her daughter to, the, to her first day of preschool. And it was the plan at the time that Steve would uh, follow Pam over a short time after she left, and then at the school they were going to film Serena's arrival and meeting her new classmates. Now, also at the same time, you had um, Rodney Eugene Solomon and Bernard Eric Miller, along with um, two other uh, individuals, were driving southbound on I-95 near the rest stop in uh, Savage, Maryland. They were driving an, an older model Cadillac, which actually ran out of gas at the uh, at the rest stop. They drifted in, into the median strip, and uh, uh, Rodney Solomon told the two people in the back seat not to worry that they were going across the, the street into the rest area to try to find help and, and to get gasoline for the car. Now, as they crossed I-95 into the northbound area of the rest stop, Rodney Solomon told uh, Bernard Miller that they were just going to get another car. Now, when they went into the, into the rest stop, they went up uh, and, and uh, actually they confronted two people, initially um, an Oriental male and a white male, and attempted to carjack them. But those two individuals fought back, causing uh, Miller and Solomon to leave them and approach another car as it pulled in. Now, the, and the initial two individuals who were assaulted by these two never reported the crime. It was only um, Bernard Miller who admitted during an interview that they had actually attempted to carjack two other people. At this point, they confronted a woman by the name of Grace Lagana, and at that time Solomon grabbed her car keys, and he was screaming they were tussling for the car keys, and he was telling her he had a gun, he would shoot her if she didn't give up the car keys. And she said, fine, you'll have to go ahead and shoot me. Uh, I'm, I'm not giving you the car keys. Well, the key ring broke. And Solomon was grabbing for the keys on the ground, and at which time Miller grabbed a hold of uh, Grace Lagana and started to struggle with her. Uh, Solomon jumped in the car, tried to start the car, but unknowingly he had inserted the, uh, the, the trunk key into the ignition so the car wouldn't start. At the same time, uh, a man standing over by the public telephone saw Grace Lagana struggling with Bernard Miller and ran to help. When uh, Solomon and Miller saw this man running toward them, they broke away and ran through a wooded area and went across through the wooded area and up and climbed a fence and came out onto Gorman Road, which runs back across I-95. They... Uh, they continued, they walked down Gorman Road, and they, they swung around into a housing development. At that point, they went to a man's home and started ringing his doorbell and pounding on the door, and he peeked out through the curtain, and he could see the two of them standing there, and he decided that he was not going to open the door under any circumstance. When he failed to open the door, they walked away, and at that time saw um, a burgundy caravan pulled into a driveway they walked up to the woman there and started talking to her and then again they tried to take her keys and in the struggle there she decided she started screaming you know there's a police officer up on the corner i'm going to call the police i can identify you and uh solomon and miller left her and broke away and went up back up into out of the housing development back onto gorman road a short distance later, they cut back into the development, and they were walking down uh, along the sidewalk of Horsham Drive. Now, down the street, a distance from where they had come out, is the residence of Steve and Pam Basu. Pam was opening the front door, going out with Serena, and Steve was following and then standing on the steps at the top filming as Pam took Serena to the car and put her in the car seat. Now, as he's filming, and unbeknownst to him, Miller and Solomon walk by the back of the car on the other side of the street. 
And when you watch carefully on the video, you can actually see Bernard Miller, who is up on the sidewalk, Rodney Solomon, who is on the uh, pay, on the uh, paved roadway, uh, look at each other with Solomon pointing to the car. He actually just flicks his hand over very quickly from his side, pointing to Pam Basu and her car, and he's looking back at Miller, indicating that that's the car they're going to get. Now, they walk uh, the distance to the stop sign, which is probably only 50 yards or so from the front door of the Basu residence, and they waited there at that stop sign. Now, while they're waiting at the stop sign, of course, Pam gets in her car and pulls out. As she's pulling out, approaching the stop sign, there's a uh, pickup truck that comes out of another side street is turning to take a group of kids to school. Pam approaches the stop sign, and it's almost immediately after stopping, uh, one of the witnesses in the uh, pickup truck sees, who is a, a, a later known to be Rodney Solomon, run up and punch Pam in the head through the window. And now they begin struggling with her. She's screaming, and, of course, the people in the truck stop, and they initially they're not sure what's going on. But they continue uh, the fight between Pam Basu struggling to stay in the car, Rodney Solomon punching her, and eventually opening the car door on her, on her uh, 1990 BMW, and he's reaching in trying to pull her out. Uh, Bernard Miller ran around to the other side of the car, and he opened the car door on the passenger side, and he put his hands up on the roof and was actually kicking with both feet to kick her out of the car. And she, of course, in this uh, struggle, she's uh, screaming, and Solomon's continuing to hit her, and he gets got his arms up under her arms and drags her out. And as he drops her on the ground, un, if she became entangled, her left arm became entangled in the seatbelt. Well, of course, she's continuing to, to scream, and at that time, too, a, a, a dump truck operated by a man by the name of Kevin Brown is coming up Knightsbridge Road to the uh, intersection of Horsham Drive. He sees what's going on, and he realizes that, that Pam Basu is in trouble, and he stopped his truck and got out, and he took a couple of steps and then decided because, well, there were two of them, only him, he went back to his truck and picked up a length of chain. Uh, he said he took that to even out the score, but by the time he could get Almost to the car, he was, I believe he was about 10 feet from the car when Solomon slammed the door and began to drive away. Now, the witnesses behind in that pickup truck could see Pam trying to run beside the car, and she's screaming, my baby, my baby. They hit a dip in the road, at which time Pam lost her balance, and as that was described, she took almost a complete somersault, uh, and her head struck the pavement. And obviously, the one man in the truck behind, uh, I believe it was Dale Hicks, said he could see blood shower up into the air when, uh, when her head struck the pavement. The uh, vehicle accelerated and took off down Horsham Drive and went around to the intersection of Gorman Road. At Gorman Road, they went around the car that had stopped for the stop sign, and they went out into the roadway. And as they're pulling over, uh, my wife is, uh, monitors a call being dispatched to another officer about two suspicious subjects who actually turned out to be Solomon and Miller and an attempted theft of keys, which would have been the one victim with the caravan, Laura Beecraft, who called in about them trying to take the keys to her van. Now, at this time, um, Jody gets on the, on the radio and tells the dispatcher, I'm closer than uh, the original officer. I'll take the call. She goes down Whiskey Bottom to uh, Stevens Road and makes a right and heads towards Gorman Road. About that time, Solomon and Miller had pulled the car over because the baby is hysterical in the back of the car. The baby is just screaming. And Miller, in a statement made, you know, the baby was making these very aggravating noises. And, of course, the baby had just witnessed, or the 22-month-old girl just witnessed the murder of her mother, who is still being dragged beside the car. Solomon pulled to the side of the road and basically got out, pulled the car seat out and tossed it on the side of the road and, and left Serena there in the car seat and then took off again down Gorman Road. Um, a woman by the name of Catherine Nearing, who was sitting at the stop sign when Solomon drove around her, saw what they did, pulled over, 
and and picked Serena up and put her in in her car and took her to her house, which was not that far away. Now Solomon and Miller continued to flee down Gorman Road in the direction of the I I ninety five overpass. As they go down across, go over uh, the, the uh, roadway. The people now there are witnesses all over the place here. This is what really throws this in: is there are so many people who actually witnessed what was going on. The first woman who sees the car coming down with Pam's body being dragged beside it thinks it's high school kids playing a joke with a mannequin dragging beside the car. And as it got closer, she realized that's not a mannequin, that's a human being being dragged. And then more and more witnesses see the car continuing down at approximately 50 to 60 miles an hour uh, past the elementary school. And some people are actually screaming at it to stop, that they're dragging a body, and they just, of course, they just keep going. They went down uh, past Stevens Road, and in only a matter of seconds, my wife Jody pulls up to that intersection and stops, and people are pointing and screaming that, uh, that way, that way, and she turns left and goes uh, down Gorman Road now in the direction of Columbia, Maryland. She cro- as she crosses over the... I-95 overpass, there's a, a school bus stop on the road, and she sees a woman standing beside the school bus crying. She stopped, and the woman couldn't say anything. She just pointed, uh, and Jody took off again uh, in pursuit, and it, uh, at this time sees uh, a mark in the roadway. And at, at first she's not certain what it is, but if the, the mark continues down. She follows it to a sharp curve in the road where she sees that obviously – uh, something happened where the car went off the side of the road, and what they had done, they went purposely off the side of the road and struck a fence to try to dislodge Pam's body from the car. And as they were, were going down the fence row, uh, her body actually became entwined in barbed wire. They pulled back out into the road, of course, and, and continued to flee, and then Jody is, again, only seconds behind them. As she accelerates from the area uh, where, where they struck the fence, she pops a, a hill crest and has to slam on the brakes because there's Pam's body in the road. This is where they had actually stopped and dumped and got out and took her body off the car and left her. There's a man who's standing there, and he's again, he's just pointing uh, with the indication of, okay, that way, that way. And she said at that time there was a decision to make as to go after the suspects or remain with the body which was, of course, the primary crime scene here. She decided to remain with the body, and uh, at this time, Solomon and Miller continued to flee. They went all the way to Route 29, across Route 29, down Route 216, to Route 108, down 108 to 32, and this they traveled actually a total of, at that point, 23 miles to Eldersburg, Maryland, and drove into a car wash to get the, to get the, wash the car and get the blood off of it. After washing the car, of course, they turn around and come back. And, and of course, in the phases here now, you've got the Maryland State Police are getting involved. The state police have stopped and checked on the the car, stopped on 95, not knowing that it's in any way connected to uh, uh, the uh, carjacking at this point. There was a, a trooper by the name of Kevin Ringgold who checked on them, and then again, uh, a little bit later, uh, First Sergeant Scott Mergenthaler also stopped and checked on them. And in the meantime, uh, the helicopter trooper, the Maryland State Police helicopter Trooper 8, is in the air and flying into the area to, to assist in looking for the car. And, with the, of course, the, the events now, uh, initially, was this a hit-and-run, uh, which they at first thought because of the damage, and then they went, no, this is not, this is anything but um, or, but a traffic fatality, this is a homicide. And that's when they started bringing in the criminal investigators and pulling them down into that area. Um, now, what you have here, you have a crime scene that begins at Horsham uh, Drive and Knightsbridge Road, and it, it, that's the initial point of the crime scene and extends for a distance of 1.75 miles before they remove the body from the car. Now, uh, of course, most carjackings are crimes of opportunity. This one was not. This one was a, a premeditated act 
just by the very fact that as they were walking by, Solomon pointed to that car. So it made this, unlike other carjackings where somebody gets uh, spotted in a gas station and they go up and take their car, or they take it at a convenience store or at a traffic light. Here, this was a, a, a planned um, carjacking that led to Pam Basu's death because they went up, waited, and ambushed her at the stop sign. And at that point, it, it flowed to where it is now with them trying to find their way back to get to Washington, D.C. They left, after they left the car wash, when they're coming back down 32, uh, so Trooper First Class Mark Price of the Maryland State Police is actually in the uh, courthouse, and he monitors the call about the stolen BMW, a death involved, and the last and the direction where it was last of travel where it was last seen. He leaves the courthouse and decides to drive down into that area, and within seconds of him reaching the intersection of uh, Route 108 and Ten Oaks Road, he sees the car. He gets behind the car, and they're, they're proceeding now on Route 108 back towards the intersection of Route 216. Mark radioed that he was behind the vehicle and the direction of travel, and uh, uh, two Maryland state troopers and one to two Howard County police officers uh, set up a stationary roadblock at the intersection of Route 216 and 108. As Solomon approached that, um, he started to slow, and Mark Price came out from behind him and pulled up the side to try to get him to stop. And I believe it was a distance of about 100 yards from the, um, uh, the stationary roadblock. Solomon slammed on the brakes and threw the car in reverse. As he goes in reverse and starts going backwards, Price swings around, and he's driving face-to-face -face with Rodney Solomon. He's looking right at Rodney Solomon as they're going down backwards down Route 108. Um, he went almost a mile backwards before losing control, hit an embankment, went up over the embankment, through a fence, and, and, and literally into a cow pasture, and went down and through a row of briars, and he is now stuck in there. Solomon bails out and runs. Miller is pretty much stuck in the car because he can't, he can't get out because of all the uh, briars and the thorn bushes around him. So he's trying to get out as Solomon is fleeing. At this time, uh, the, the Maryland State Police helicopter comes out overhead and starts to drop down, and they realize that there's nobody anywhere near catching Rodney Solomon. He's 200 yards ahead of everybody. And the, uh, the pilot, Scott Richardson, comes and he sets the chopper down, and the onboard medic, uh, Steve Proctor, jumped out and chased Solomon and uh, finally Solomon dropped, but very uncooperative about pulling his arms out from under him, and uh, Proctor was able to bring him into custody. And in the meantime, uh, the Howard County and the state police officers were able to get um, Bernard Miller into custody. And of course, it's then that they realize that Bernard Miller is only wearing his, uh, his boxer shorts and a pair of shoes. Uh, he had, his clothing had a lot of blood on uh, from helping remove the body from the car, so they were actually, as they were driving, he was throwing his clothes out the window and to, to discard them. And, of course, they also took Pam's belongings, uh, briefcases, uh, the one shoe that was left in the car they threw out. And they, but they were throwing her stuff out as they went along, her driver's license. And, uh, again, this encompassed leaving more and more uh, various crime scenes along their escape route. And eventually, all of this, all of this was uh, found. All the evidence that they had discarded was found. But of course, they were they were taken into custody and hauled back uh, to the police station. And in the meantime, down at the crime scene, you're you're now getting officers in there. They had actually dispatched the the um, the traffic uh, unit initially was responded uh, uh, down to that area to look over the the scene. And of course, they by that they realized this was not the traffic fatality, but the homicide, as I said, and you had the criminal investigators uh, on the scene, but they used the traffic unit to help try to map the, um, the, the entire length of the crime scene to figure the beginning or the ending, follow it back to its beginning. And it was a trail that was easy enough to follow because the, what Jody had observed in the roadway was actually a, uh, the body drag mark of Pam Basu. 
This was blood and and bodily fluids that were that, that mark in the roadway as they were traveling. And they started walking back, and they were they used uh, a VASCAR instrument to record everything as, as exact distances, and they were finding pieces of hair, clothing, uh, flesh, and uh, bone matter at various spots along the road. So now you've got a, a 1.75-mile crime scene that is um, now being secured and investigated as, as that part. And it was uh, just such a horrendous crime that would hit the, it was on the news by noon. And within a very short span of time of it being on the air, the prisoners at the Howard County Jail were, who were watching the news were being informed, of course, that, that Solomon and Miller had abducted uh, this woman, basically murdered her and kidnapped the daughter and threw her out on the side of the road. As, at that point, the Howard County Police Station was being inundated with calls that were coming from the jail threatening the lives of Solomon and Miller. As they, uh, uh, even though they might be criminals, there's, a, there's that uh, unwritten code of ethics that exists within the group that you do not harm children. Uh, they were, uh, what they were going to do, is, is according to the threats, that they were going to kill them when they got there. Now, of course, they had the, the interview. Uh, Miller made an initial statement, and in one of his statements in the very initial phases before they even began to record anything, his statement to the police, uh, I believe it was Detective Lee Lockman and um, Detective Kevin Burnett, that they, they, when the car crashed, when Solomon was jumping out, he looked back at him and said, we're partners in crime now. If you say anything, I'll kill you. And well, of course, uh, when Miller went in, he, he said that he wanted, to, he wanted to go ahead and make a statement and he wanted to tell them what happened. He, he read, he went through, this, went through, gave a statement uh, indicating what was going on and how they were going to take the car, uh, what led up to, to the taking of the car, and how all of this played out up to the point of abducting or, or pulling Pam out of her car and basically abducting uh, Serena as they fled. Uh, and at some point he decided to change his mind, even though he had already said Solomon was driving the car, he he changes his mind and said, no, actually, I was driving. And then things kind of switched back and forth there, and then they ended the statement, and he went, they took him down into the, uh, to the cell area. Solomon uh, said that he had no desire to make any statement at all. But in the meantime, um, they had figured out that the Cadillac that was out there on, the, on uh, I-95 was somehow connected to the um, carjacking itself. So they went back, Scott Mergenthaler went back, and he took the two people there into custody. And the one, the one male was named Tony, his name was Tony Angelo uh, Williams. And uh, the, the one, they, the girl, they, they called her Little Sean. Uh, and they, they, actually, they took them into custody, went down to the uh, Maryland State Police Waterloo Barrack on Route 1. And at that time, uh, Detectives uh, Sergeant Pete D'Antuano went down and interviewed them. Uh, got to a point where he understood that they were together with Solomon and Miller, but were not directly involved in any way with the carjacking itself. So they, those two were uh, eventually released, and at this point, the, the detectives again went back and were trying to figure out again to piece everything together with all the, the evidence that they had. Now we we took at this point they were down in the cell block at which time Rodney Solomon calls Lee Lockman over and says, "I'd like to go ahead and make a statement." Uh, of course, at that point, they were going, well, now, you know, you didn't want us to talk before you said you wanted an attorney. And he said, no, I, I want to talk. I want to tell you what happened. I want to set the record straight. Well, they, okay, they bring him out. They advise him of his rights and said, you know, this is, again, you, you have said you wanted an attorney initially. Do you want to get away from that? And they, he said, yes, I don't want the attorney. I want to make a statement. Well, in his statement, as he begins, um, he said, I'm going to tell you things that are just going to basically blow your mind. 
and and what he starts, he's 28 years old, and he begins blaming everything on Bernard Eric Miller, who's 16. He's saying this whole the whole thing all along was uh, Miller's idea, was his thought to steal the car. Uh, his it was all his doing. He was the one driving. He was just uh, as he was trying to put it. I'm I'm the innocent bystander being led astray by a 16-year-old. They finally, of course, and, and they finally said, "Okay, look, <laughs> we'll we'll go ahead and and take your statement." He gets the statement recorded, and then they they get him ready and process him to take him down to the to the jail. At the commissioner's office, he he gets a very belligerent attitude over there with with them, saying, "Well, you know, I don't." Uh, I don't uh, like the way things are going. Basically, you're, this county is, is racist. This is all based on on uh, racist issues, why I'm being incarcerated, why I'm being sent to the jail. And the same thing with Bernard Miller, except his was, well, can we hurry up and get this process over with so I can call my mother and go home? He actually believed that at the end of this he would leave and go home. And they've got him processed. Miller charged as an adult and Solomon with the charges and took them down uh, to the Howard County Detention Center. Once they arrived there, uh, Rodney Solomon went into his his bad man act and started threatening to kill anybody and beat anybody that uh, that came in contact with him. And they said what they would do, he would not be going into general population. They were going to put him in isolation. And they did the same thing, of course, with Miller. And again, some of this stretched back to the fact of the of the uh, active threats that came in from the jail, stating that they would kill Solomon and Miller when they got there. But the the opinion of it was through some of the um, personnel at the jail was the fact that Solomon was doing this because he was afraid of going out in general population because he knew what was going to happen to him. So the only way he could save face. Was uh, was putting on his uh, big bad man attitude of, about how he was going to take everybody apart. Of course, they they overnight they've got him there, and the next day, of course, their people are out again. The detectives are going back over the crime scene; they're looking for everything. Um, Detective First Class Frank Dayhoff was interviewing people on Horsham Drive, and uh, stopped and talked to a woman by the name of Julie Panzeri. At that time, she told. Uh, Detective Dayhoff, that uh, she remembered seeing two black males coming down the street uh, on the, mor- the the day before when Pam was uh, murdered, and remembered seeing Steve standing on the on the steps of the house, uh, videotaping Pam and Serena as they were getting into the car. When uh, uh, Detective Dayhoff talked to Steve, he asked him about uh, taking the camera. And looking at it, and of course, when he looked at the uh, camera, he sees there there they are, Rodney Solomon and Bernard Miller walking past in the background. Uh, and uh, what the odds here, Steve Basu actually filmed the two men who would only moments later um, assault and murder his wife. And, and of course, they, they have now the two men who committed the crime on videotape. Now, when when they uh, in the process, the, the vehicle was impounded and taken to the uh, Howard County Police Department's uh, secure area where uh, the members of the Forensic Services Division processed it. Mr. R.C. Bartley, um, a, a very well-known and recognized fingerprint expert uh, throughout of, uh, the United States, was uh, now working at the Howard County Police Department, and he helped process that vehicle and identify the fingerprints of Rodney Solomon and Bernard Miller as being on the vehicle. But he also went and, as he was looking at it, he noticed that the left rear wheel of the car uh, had uh, uh, some smudge marks on it. They took the wheel off, and at that time, they found in and around the axle, they found the strands of Pam's uh, hair wrapped around the wheel and the axle. And they also found... Uh, of course, bone, flesh, and and blood fragments within within that uh, same area, and they took, of course all this evidence is collected and held uh, for for trial. And in in the meantime, Solomon is continuing his his routine down at the jail, um, causing a lot of problems. Now, what is actually going on here is he 
he has a core of hero worshipers among the jail guards. Now, he's in, he's in solitary confinement, and he begins setting fires in his cell. Um, he's taken from his cell. The cell is shaken down by uh, corrections officers, personnel. His cell is stripped of everything in it, and he's put back in, and within minutes he's setting fires again. Well, certainly the only place that he is getting the materials to set this fire is being provided to him by his core of worshipers in, in the corrections division. They're, they're giving him the, the implements uh, to go ahead and, and set his fires. And then he would also use the matches to set off the sprinkler system and, the, the, and flood his cell. The next, the next part of his, his issue, he was taking urine and feces and throwing it at the guards. When the guards were wise, wised up to the fact that this is what he was doing, they could walk far enough away that he couldn't hit them. Well, and within a matter of time, he is provided with um, shampoo bottles, the plastic shampoo bottles and conditioner bottles that he stuffs with feces and urine, shakes it and makes a paste, and now sprays it at the guards. Now, when they, they take the shake down the cell again, and of course they take all of his materials out, and this time they, they leave him in a straitjacket overnight because he just uh, of his problems that he's causing. But every time they shake down the cell, within seconds of finishing it, there are complaints coming in from his family about the way he's being treated. So there again, somebody in the corrections file is going out, and that the corrections officer group is going out and making calls to his family and friends and saying he's being mistreated. And at the same time, uh, uh, while this is going on at, at certain times when he's being taken to different places, he and a female inmate see each other and, quote, fall in love. He starts writing love letters to the female inmate, which the jail guards then pack up and transport over and give to the, the uh, female that he's, quote, fallen in love with. Now she's sending uh, letters, love letters back to him, and at the same time he enlists her help to disrupt the daily routine at the jail. He's sending her instructions on what to do, uh, how to disrupt activities, set fires, and everything else to, to, that they can do to possi possibly disrupt everything that's going on within the jail. Now, when... Um, all, all this is going on, of course. He's being charged each time with the assault on the officers. He refuses to um, accept the paperwork. Uh, I mean, he refuses to sign it. He accepts his copy, but he won't, he won't, uh, won't put his signature uh, to it that he's being charged with these other crimes. And in the meantime, they're, everybody's they're getting ready for the, um, for the uh, first trial, which is Bernard Eric Miller. And um, at that time, I was assigned uh, to make sure uh, the things went smoothly in the courtroom. Myself and, a, and another a state trooper, we were assigned in plain clothes. And this, uh, again, an opportunity I'd never before had was to be able to go in and sit through a process of jury selection all the way up into uh, the beginning of the trial with, and then sit through the whole trial. Uh, normally when we testify, we get off the stand and we don't hear anything else, and this was certainly a first for me to be able to sit there and uh, listen to, to the testimony of every witness as they, as they came in. Now, one of the uh, uh, reasons for having uh, Bob Cromwell and I in the courtroom in, in um, plain clothes was the sheriff's idea that he did not want members of the jury to see Miller being escorted in and out of the of the uh, courtroom itself by uniformed deputies or police officers. He said he wanted them to draw no inference from a uniform. So this is one of the reasons we were also there to uh, take that inference away from the jury. The beginning of the trial itself was, was just uh, amazing to sit through the process of watching uh, Mike Rexrode, the senior prosecutor, and his assistant, uh, Joe Murtha and Christine Gage, to lay out the evidence. And uh, to say it was overwhelming would be an understatement. But, of course, the brutality of this was the other point. And the, Mike Rexrode decided that they would only introduce one 
photograph into evidence, but it was a very large blow-up that they offered into evidence. And when when my uh, wife Jody was on the stand, they uh, opened that photo uh, and showed it to her and asked, is this the way you found the body? And, of course, Judge Dennis Sweeney, who was the circuit court judge assigned for the trial, when he saw it, he just uh, looked for briefly and turned his head away. And it was sometime after lunch when that same photo was shown to members of the jury. And I was sitting right beside the jury when that photo was presented, and the reaction of the jury was was unbelievable. One man just went to just turn chalk white. A young girl in the front row actually began to cry, and others just shook their shook their heads and turned away when they saw that photograph. Now, as witnesses took a stand one by one and and described what was going on that day, one particular witness on the stand was testifying as to the the sound of the body being dragged. And at that point, I was looking right at Bernard Eric Miller, and he turned around and looked over his right shoulder at his family and friends in the, in the uh, courtroom and smiled and then turned back to the front. And, of course, you know, Steve Basu testified, and, and it was a very, very emotional thing for him because there was a couple times that they had to halt testimony so he could regain his composure and come back and say, okay, now I, I can go on and testify. Uh, the, the case went on for all the, from a Monday through Friday, and it was on a Friday afternoon or Friday morning, actually, early that they, or not, excuse me on that, it was a Thursday that the case went to uh, the jury. And they said, okay, you know, the, the, here's the evidence, here's everything, deliberate. And they went in. As they were filing out, uh, Bob Cromwell and I are taking Bernard Miller out of the courtroom, and as soon as we get outside, he turns to us and says, well, I'll be walking soon. And I said, what? He said, yeah, they finding me not guilty. I'm going home. Uh, when the uniform deputies took him, walked away, I, Bob Cromwell and I looked at each other and asked, did he sit through the train, same trial we just sat through? And the next morning, uh, the jury came back. Again, they deliberated up till I think, 11 or 12 o'clock that night. They came back early the next morning, began deliberations again. And sometime between 10 and 10.30, they came back and said that they had arrived at a verdict. And at that point, they came in, and when the verdicts were read, uh, for some reason, Miller was found not guilty on the very first count that he had attempted to rob uh, Grace Lagana at the uh, uh, rest stop on I-95. Um, a big smile on his face because he was sure at that point he had everything uh, clear that he was uh, free and he was going to go home. Well, of course, then it was just one guilty count after another after another all the way down, and it was a very, uh, a very. Uh, shattering moment for him when they found that, okay, you are guilty and you're being taken out of here and taken to the jail. And, again, he's, he's looking around almost in disbelief that the jury would actually find him guilty. But even the jurors, made kind of the ones that would talk to the press, said the evidence that was there was absolutely positively overwhelming. And, and the same thing was proclaimed in the Rodney Solomon trial was that, yes, this is an overwhelming verdict, um, boom. But they would not give him the death penalty. They, they, they said no. For whatever reason, they believed that uh, there was a, some shadow of doubt that he was driving for the entire time, even though well, the way most of the witnesses would put it that they did, he did testify, or not testify, but I'm sorry, but he was the driver of the car for the entire time. Uh, of the incident, not and not switching back and forth with Miller as as they were trying to to state. But we're taking taking back and, and going back over um, in, into some of the earlier phases of this is looking back and seeing what the people lived through who were a part of this. And uh, uh, my wife, when she came home that night, she or she said, you know, I, I'm not going to go to class and work out tonight. I said, no, you have to. This is a night you cannot miss. Of all nights, you need this more than you'll ever need anything. You've got to go in and burn your frustrations. Pound the heavy bag. Um, go go uh, get in and spar. Do anything, but you've got to go work out. And later on, she said, yes, you were absolutely right. I did need that. And it was. I'm glad I went. I'm glad you made me go. 
But then it wasn't long the nightmare started. And I certainly many, many nights I had to wake her up when she was screaming uh, in her sleep. And the, the nightmares that she was having was that Tam was actually standing up in the road and asking her, why didn't you help me? Uh, why didn't you save me? Why did, what about my baby? And this was night after night that she was having these uh, dreams. And uh, so it was waking her up and getting her back uh, into, into the idea that, okay, I can handle this, I can do this. But, uh, again, even uh, two or three days after the incident, she sat down to dinner one night, picked up her fork and dropped it and said, I can't eat, I've lost my appetite. And this went on for quite a while uh, with her. And fortunately for everyone who was involved in that incident, the police department provided a group counseling session uh, the, the very day of the incident. And one of the one thing that Jody said was the, the most difficult for her that day was being the first officer on the scene, being there protecting the scene, and being involved with that incident initially for up to two to three hours and then saying, okay, go back and handle your regular duty assignment. She said, I walk away from a murder, and here I am expected to go handle a vandalism like nothing else just happened. And that was a, a very, very difficult thing for her to deal with. And, and again, it was the, the group counseling and a, and a good support of everybody who helped get all the officers who were involved in this through it. And when you're looking, again, to the, the officer who had the initial contact with Steve Basu, he had never made a death notification. He was, he was still basically a rookie. And uh, when he saw Steve Basu come pull up, uh, Steve said, I'm looking for my wife. And when um, the officer there, Brooke Donovan, found out that uh, this was Steve Basu, the husband of the victim, he said, I was at a loss. He said, because I knew his wife was dead and I didn't know what happened, and I didn't know how to tell him. And, he, and he'll say to this day, I don't remember what I said to him uh, to, to inform him that his wife had died. And he said, I, I, was, I was scared. I, I asked for a supervisor's help, and I couldn't get anybody to respond to help me. And I did something I had, I had to do, but had no idea how I even did it at that time. And later on, um, I mean, this is some years later. Uh, Jody and I have been asked from time to time. We do uh, case study presentations on the Basu carjacking murder for Johns Hopkins University in their uh, police executive leadership program. And this, this officer was taking the course at the time. So Brooke Donovan, I knew he would be in the class, and I made a copy of his statement. And at the, uh, while we were in the class, I handed it to him, and I said, I want you to read this. And he read it, and everybody in the class realized, okay, he had written it. And he looked, he looked up at me and, and Jody, and he looked around the room and said, I honestly, got, to God, I don't remember writing this. And that was, that was his reaction to it, even though it was some time after that he wrote what his personal feelings were about that case. And then over time, uh, uh, and there's when they when – they, presenting the case study to these classes is when they started to ask about Steve and Serena. And I was able to contact Steve and uh, met with him and told him I had, I had written a book about uh, Pam's murder. And, uh, and, the, and our initial meeting was, well, lasted about two hours. And, and at the, near the end, he asked me if he could read the manuscript. And I said, well, Steve, there's no way I can sugarcoat what happened to Pam. And he said, well, I'd still like to look at it. And I agreed to meet him the following week, and I brought him a copy of the manuscript. And, I, again, I told him, I said, Steve, this is, it's very brutal, it's very ugly, um, and you need to understand that you're going to get to spots in there that are, you may not be able to read. And a week later again we met, and this time he handed me the manuscript, and he said, you were right. He said, I couldn't go any further than a certain point. I had to stop. That's when he asked, uh, can I tell you what life was like before and after Pam's death, and would you include it as part of your book? And I, I, I agreed. I said, yes, I certainly would. And I took that at the time, and uh, what I did, uh, let him go ahead and get his thoughts together, met him again with a tape recorder and recorded what he had to say. 
and I used his marks to open and close. I got the prologue and epilogue are Steve Basu's thoughts before and after Pam's death. And it was uh, when you look at all the things that he went through over that period of time, I mean, it, was, it had to be one of the most heartbreaking and I, I wonder how he was able to hold together after I had talked to him for a while and started to, to listen to how he felt. Uh, if, I give him credit for being a, a man of great strength and courage for what he did. And, of course, uh, he said night after night, Serena was having the nightmares, and he would actually sleep on, on the floor beside her bed to try to, to help calm her, and it took a long time to do that. And as time, as time went on, we met more and more, and he had not yet met Jody, but although he knew that she was the first officer on the scene, he had not yet met her. And we, we made arrangements. He said one day, he said, I, I want to meet Jody. I would like to be able to meet her. And I took Jody down, and she said she was extremely nervous about the meeting. And in the, uh, the initial phase of, the, of, the, of their, their get-together over a coffee was – uh, I think it was, to say the least, very tense. And the, to watch the, the reaction between the two of them, uh, and then it, it, once it reached a certain point, things began to settle, and as time went on, of course, uh, the three of us became very, very good friends. And we've, uh, we see Steve actually we've probably about once a month for coffee. And uh, my very first meeting with Serena was a, was a uh, kind of a shock to me because I had had all the documents and everything I needed to write the book, but I had never met her. I only had a color photograph of this 22-month-old girl, and, and the photograph, the, the most striking thing is about the, the, the look of her eyes looking at you. And uh, the, Steve invited Jody and I and some other friends over to his house, and we went down the day after Christmas. Uh, some years back, and when I knocked at the door, the last thing I expected was Serena to open the door. And when she opened it, the first thing th that I'm looking at are her eyes, and it was just a very, very stunning moment for a minute to see the eyes that I'd seen for so long as a little girl on a grown young woman standing in front of me. Um, but we were, I mean, we've been friends. Steve comes to the house. In fact, I was together with him last week. And I started to work with him a little bit. I asked him if he would mind if I tried to get the Howard County to provide a memorial uh, for Pam. And he agreed. He said, uh, you know, if, if you can do that, I would appreciate it. And I began working on it uh, some months ago. And uh, recently it was approved that a proclamation w will be issued on uh, Friday, September the 8th, which will mark the, the 25th anniversary of Pam's death. Uh, the, the Howard County Executive, uh, Alan Kittleman, will, will give a proclamation to the Basu family declaring that Pam Basu Day. And at the time, uh, we were also informed that, uh, that they will honor Pam once again next year uh, at April 8th at the Howard County Police Headquarters where they have a memorial service for homicide victims. So this, uh, again, was uh, uh, just such a, a, a horrendous crime and the toll that it took on so many different people, uh, and that's what I included in the in the book itself. Back toward the end of the book, I have the the, the statements and the feelings of Pam's family, her sister, her father, and Steve again, and then going back and and asking the, some of the officers and the prosecutors who were involved uh, to make statements for that book. And I what I told them, I don't want your professional feelings about this. I want to know what you felt from a personal side of this. What, what did you feel about this case? And there's some uh, pretty interesting comments that were made in that book about how they felt and what they went through. And it's, again, uh, just uh, one of the ugliest uh, crimes you can, you can come across. And uh, this is one case, too, that George, uh, President George H.W. Bush, when he heard about it, asked to be kept apprised of the investigation and then when he addressed the uh, convention of the International Association of Chiefs of Police on October the 25th, 1992, he spoke about Pam's murder, and then he signed uh, the Anti-Car the anti Theft Act of 1992, which was H.R. 4542. Uh, he signed it into law uh, in the presence of the, uh, all those chiefs of police. And it's, uh, currently, um, uh, Rodney Solomon 
uh, is he's serving life without parole, and they, they hit him up with that with life without parole plus 80 years. And he's currently held in maximum security at the North Branch Correctional Institution up in Cumberland, Maryland. And Bernard Miller, uh, is uh, he was sentenced to life, which made him eligible for, for parole, and thus far parole has been denied with the latest hearing being on July 22, 2017. And he is in, uh, held in medium security at the Eastern Correctional Institution in Westover, Maryland, which is down on the eastern shore. Wow. Jim, this is uh, truly an amazing story right from, from start to, to finish. Um, you know, it, uh, listening to you I, I, uh, and the, the account of what happened, I'm thinking that there was uh, some horrible luck involved, too, for Pam in, in this sense. Uh, it, had these people not run out of gas... Uh, which is a fairly simple thing, but had that not happened, uh, maybe none of this would have happened. Um, had when they when they were making their first attempts uh, at, at carjackings, uh, you know, the one lady stood up to him and and refused to turn over her keys and so forth. Had she surrendered the keys, maybe, you know, they'd have just gotten away with the car and no one would have been seriously injured. And the other one, when the, the key ring broke and uh, they put the trunk key in the ignition. And uh, and there was a lot of stuff that, that seemed to just uh, bizarre circumstances that led to uh, to Pam's death. And I can only hope that uh, when, when the carjacking occurred and uh, they were dragging her down the road that... Uh, Perhaps when she lost her balance and, uh, you know, the witnesses said that they could see blood spurt from her head when her head hit the pavement, that she was unconscious. I just can't imagine being dragged over uh, for over a mile, almost two miles. Um, uh, just incredible. So I hope she was at the minimum unconscious, uh, you know. Well, you, and, would, and, you would believe that at, at the point where, uh, when she took the tumble and her head uh, smashed the pavement, that she was probably unconscious. And um, the, the the part of this is that when when you get down to the crime scene itself, when um, Jody approached the body uh, to again, you know, certainly regardless of what happened, you go to verify that they're dead. She said she could see uh, that the, the front of her skull had actually been ground away. There was no brain. I mean, her it was an empty ca- her head was an empty cavity. And that was the same mm-hmm. thing Officer Fred Von Briesen said. He said it was just like an autopsy had already been performed. And, uh, and so yeah. it, it, the brutality of this is beyond comprehension. What what did what did Miller use for defense? How did uh, what made him think he was going to get a walk? Well, he he had um, the um, uh, just the thought in his head, just the way the case was presented. And I think his attorney was assuring him that everything was going well, um, but there, but there was no way that that he was going to be found uh, not guilty. I mean, it was just after the the testimony and the evidence was just positively overwhelming. There was no way he could he could get up and walk out of this. Oh, and was, uh, again, that was just one of those things that the way they they slammed it down there. But it was it was cut and dry almost from the beginning. Um, when when they uh, uh, started to present the evidence, I mean, Mike Rex Road and Joe Murphy and Christine Gage, when when they did their homework on this, they put this down, and and they they were putting the nails in the coffin before it ever went into the courtroom, and they didn't. I mean, they did an absolutely outstanding job at prosecuting both uh, Miller and Solomon, and uh, and they they. Uh, uh, did one of the? In fact, I was talking to a circuit court judge yesterday who actually brought that up about what an outstanding job that they that they were able to do on the, on this uh, on this case. And, and he said again, he said, you know, I, I I commend them for the job they did and and the the time that they had to, and effort that they had to put into it because this took um, up to uh, you know weeks of preparation. It was night and day and and working on weekends. Uh, as to what they did to put this together to make it go, but when once once they opened from the opening statement on, 
uh, Mike and, and Joe and Christine, just they, they weave that case together so tight there was no way out of it. And, again, uh, again the, the physical evidence was, was overwhelming as well as the eyewitness it, evidence. Jim, we're just about out of time before we uh, before we close. Uh, where can people buy your book, Fatal Destiny? Uh, Fatal Destiny: The Carjacking Murder of Dr. Pam Basu.